in Congress, July 4th, 1776. The unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with one another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. That, of course, is the opening of the Declaration of Independence, which was signed 245 years ago today. As Americans, we celebrate the 4th of July as Independence Day, and it is right that we should celebrate. Our country is the best country in the world, and I am grateful that I am an American. That said, today and for the next five Sundays, we will read and study a different historical document, a declaration not against an unjust tyrant and all the reasons for becoming a separate country, but rather a declaration of what a good and almighty God has done for us and how we should live in light of his power and promises. That would be the letter of 2 Peter. Now, for the next uh, few weeks, I will be preaching through chapters 1 and 2, and in August we will get into chapter 3. Now, I've actually already preached chapters 1 and 2, but it was a couple years ago, and you know, then 2020 and some other stuff happened. So maybe you've not totally remembered all these things, and it would be unfair for me to jump right into uh, chapter 3, which is quite heavy and has a lot of stuff, without giving us the background of chapters 1 and 2. So I want to preach chapters 1 and 2 again over these next um, few weeks, and then we'll get to chapter 3 pretty soon. Okay, so the overview of the whole letter of 2 Peter. In chapter 1, we learn and read about the prerogative of God in calling and choosing a people unto himself and also the gifts that he gives to people. And in chapters 1 and 2, we also uh, learn that true knowledge or faith in Jesus is really what we are called to know, understand, and believe. And That is juxtaposed quite seriously against false teaching and false belief. In chapters 1 and 3, we also have a theme of the Christian life in light of the truth of Jesus. And throughout the letter, we also have the theme of the power of God. We have the power of God in chapter 1 in the coming of Christ. And we have the power of God in chapters in chapter 2 of the punishment of rebels and false teachers. And in, also in chapter 2, we have the power of God in rescuing and preserving those who follow him. And in chapter 3, we then get to the promises of God in the prophets, in the second coming of Jesus, and how God will fulfill those promises. Okay, so with that overview in mind, let's uh, let's explore this first section of uh, the letter in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1. If you guys don't mind advancing the slide one, thank you. It's not working. Verse uh, point one on your outline is, Our sovereign king promises 
and provides. Our sovereign king promises and provides. Now Peter starts the letter in a customary way by stating who the letter is from, who the letter is to, and a short greeting. Verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. There is so much theological richness just in these first two verses. And some of the things I want to point out are, Peter is a bondservant and an apostle. He, we have received a faith. Okay? It's not drummed up from ourselves. It's received a faith. And this faith is the same kind as what Peter and the other Christians know and learn about and believe. And this faith is by the righteousness of Jesus. He has granted to us grace and peace. This grace and peace is multiplied to us. And this grace and peace comes in the knowledge or in the true knowledge of who? Of Jesus, who is God, Savior, Christ, and Lord. Those four things. All in the first two verses. Okay? So first, we have Simon Peter. And this is the Apostle Peter, one of the earlier fo early followers of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, we know him better as Peter... And that's why this letter and the one before it are called 1st and 2nd Peter. Simon was his original name, and Jesus gave him the additional name Peter, which means rock. And in the historical accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, the first five books of the New Testament, he is called Simon early on, uh, and then quickly switches to Peter, and a handful of times he is called Simon Peter, uh, particularly at big moments of history. And as he writes in chapter 3, this is the second time that he is writing to this particular group of Christians. Now, for our purposes, it's not all that important who he's writing to, but in 1 Peter, he makes it clear that it's Christians in regions that are now in modern-day Turkey. Okay. Next, he ident identifies himself as a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter identifies himself in these two ways. This is a striking juxtaposition because bondservant is a lowly position while apostle is a highly trusted position of someone in authority. Bondservant is a slave in Roman society. But using that word slave can be a problem for us American readers because Roman slavery wasn't exactly the same as the slavery that we Americans think of where people were owned as property like animals and thought of as inferior because of their race. Nevertheless, one of the fundamental social distinctions in Roman society was between slave and free. So to be a bondservant means that you had a lord and you were obligated to follow the orders of that lord. An apostle, on the other hand, is a position of authority. Specifically, an apostle is a messenger who bears the authority of one who sent him. And for Peter to call himself both a bondservant of Jesus Christ and an apostle of Jesus Christ points out that he is 100% under the authority of Jesus and he also speaks 100% with the authority of Jesus Christ. Next, I want to get into all the ways that, Jesus acknowledge, uh, that Peter acknowledges Jesus as God, 
Savior, Christ, and Lord. So first, who is Jesus? Jesus is a real man from history. Jesus of Nazareth. He is the most important and impactful man who has ever lived. So impactful that our very system of dates centers around his birth. This is the year 2021, so it has been 2,000 years plus a couple of decades since the birth of Jesus. Okay? Jesus is also God. Now, God is one being who eternally exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Christians call this the Trinity. Tri for three, unity for one, Trinity. God created the universe and everything in it, including the pinnacle of creation, human beings. Now, how can a man who was born 2,000 plus years ago also be God? It's because the second person of the Trinity, the Son, the eternal Son of God, was sent by the first person, the Father, to add to his God nature a human nature. He is eternally God with no beginning and no end. And at the exact right point in history, he also becomes a man by the power of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy, the Holy Spirit, who comes over the young woman, Mary, so that she can give birth to Jesus. He is fully God, but not merely God. He is also man. He is also fully man, not less than a man, but also not merely man. He is also fully God. And the point that Peter is making is that Jesus is God. He calls Jesus our God, Jesus. This is really noteworthy because typically a reference to God in the scriptures means God the Father. For example, in verse 2, knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That's two persons. But here in verse 1, Peter is clearly talking about the second person of God, our God and Savior, Jesus. And historical note, Peter was the first person to ever acknowledge that Jesus is God. In Matthew 16, 15 and 16, uh, Jesus asked his followers, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, this is one of the cases of him being called Simon Peter, answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus is our God. Peter also calls him our savior. Now a savior is one who saves, which begs the question, why do we need saving? Why do we need a savior? Because we have all sinned. We have all sinned, and the punishment for sin is not trivial. It is definitely something you want to be saved from. God created human beings perfect and sinless. But the first two human beings, Adam and Eve, they fell from perfection when they willfully decided to disobey God. They made their own declaration of independence against God. God designed them to never die. But in that moment, their perfect human nature became fallen and sinful. And they started to die at that moment and would eventually die. And now, all of Adam and Eve's offspring, and who was the first? Cain. The very first human being ever born was a murderer. Cain and Abel and Seth in that first generation, and every human being ever since then, including you and including me, have been born fallen and sinful. And that is why we can't be perfectly good. Our sinful nature that we inherited from our first parents causes us to sin. We cannot not sin. We have all sinned. The punishment for sin is death and everlasting hell. And because we sin, death and hell are what we deserve. 
we are all better than what we deserve. Right now, just living here, just breathing here. Every heartbeat, every breath that we take, every moment that we live outside of hell is a grace from God. It shows the patience of God, which we will learn about and read about in chapter 3. But that is what we need saving from. That is why we need a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. And third, Peter calls him Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus is commonly known as Jesus Christ, so you might think that Christ is his last name, but it's not. Christ is a title, and it means anointed one. Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, and the, that itself is a translation from the Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah and Christ mean the same thing. God knew that Adam and Eve were going to sin and that the rest of us were going to be born sinners. In his grace and mercy, he formulated a rescue plan, a rescue plan before that first sin was ever committed. In fact, before the foundation of the world. In Ephesians 1.4, we read this. He plucked a man named Abram out of obscurity, renamed him Abraham, told him that he would bless him and make him a great nation, gave him a promised land and, uh, and a great people, and he, that he would bless all the peoples of the world through him, because from his descendants would come this Messiah, the Anointed One. God then worked out his plan, and from time to time sent prophets to speak for him, to give people foresight as to who the Messiah was going to be and when he would come. And then, when the fullness of time came... God sent forth his son, born of a woman, Galatians 4.4. As Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. Now, how does Jesus the Savior, the Messiah, Christ, save us? The fact that our sin merits for us death and eternity in hell is very bad news. In the face of this bad news, I now offer you the good news. The good news, or what we call the gospel, is that we can be forgiven by God. Jesus, the God-man, lived a sinless life that we cannot live. He died on the cross to take our punishment. Jesus dying on the cross paid the penalty for our sin. God sees Jesus' death and says, that punishment counts so that I don't have to punish the actual sinners. God also looks at Jesus' sinlessness, his righteousness, and he says, the holiness that Jesus achieved by living a sinless life, I am going to count that as the righteousness of these sinners. That's why Peter writes, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He grants salvation to us by the righteousness of Jesus. Not our righteousness. We can't get to heaven by being good. Our going to heaven is because Jesus is good. And on top of that, Jesus saves us for free. All we have to do is believe and trust and have faith in Jesus. God saves us because of our faith and not by anything we do. We cannot earn our own salvation. We just read in Titus 3 uh, at the beginning of service, God saves us not out of deeds that we have done in righteousness, but out of his mercy. And also the scriptures say, Abraham believed in God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. The belief was counted as righteousness. Salvation is by faith. Now look at the word knowledge in verse 2 
and if you have it in front of you, of course, is, is ver in verse 3 as well. It says knowledge in verse 2 and true knowledge in verse 3, but there's no distinction here. It's the same word in the original Greek. It is not just head knowledge or knowing facts about God or about Jesus or about the gospel that saves. It's true knowledge, heart knowledge, faith, trust. It is said sometimes that the difference between heaven and hell is 12 inches between the head and the heart. You can know the gospel in your head, but if you don't trust the gospel in your heart, that makes all the difference. And not only that, but even the faith that itself that we need to be saved, God gives it to us. The Bible teaches, it is by grace you are saved through faith. And this faith is not from you. It is a gift of God, Ephesians 2.8. And that's why Peter writes, to those who have received a faith. It comes from God. Of the same kind of, as ours. This is what makes all Christians Christians and unites us all. By the righteousness of our God and Savior and Christ Messiah, Jesus. If you are not actively believing and trusting in the good news of Jesus right now, I invite you to believe. I invite you to receive a faith as the same kind as ours by the righteousness of Jesus. In fact, I beg you, please believe. Your eternal soul depends on this very thing. And I and everyone else here who believes would like nothing better than to see a sinner saved by the grace of God through your faith. There will be much rejoicing in heaven the moment that happens. Lastly, Peter calls Jesus Lord. Now what do you do with a uh, person who is God, who is Savior, who is the Christ, the Messiah? You worship him. You serve him. You devote your life to him. You follow him. He becomes your Lord. You become his bondservant. You don't just say, thanks for dying for my sins, Jesus. Bye. No. Sadly, Many so-called Christians do exactly that. They say they believe in Jesus, but they don't want to believe Jesus when he says, obey all that I have commanded you, in Matthew 28. They want to get into heaven. They certainly don't want to go to hell. But they, don't, uh, but they want to do what they want to do. And they teach others this false religion as well. And this is, in fact, one of the main themes of 2 Peter. P, uh, people claiming Jesus as Lord, but not following him as Lord, and falsely teaching others, uh, uh, claiming uh, these lies as well. Okay? But that is the opposite of what Jesus himself said was the mark of a true follower of his. Two weeks ago on Father's Day outside, we learned that Jesus said in John 14, 21, that he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. So Jesus is God Almighty and our true Lord and King. The Declaration of Independence was written about King George III, who was an abusive tyrant. But this letter was written about the true King, Jesus. And the Lord Jesus doesn't take, 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 like taxation without representation, but rather he gives, gives, gives. And should I say, he grants, grants, grants. So, verse 2 and 3 and 4. Grace and peace be multiplied to you, seeing that his divine power has granted to us, 
everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Ah, this is just so good. Grace and peace. Grace is God gifts, God's gifts, and peace is reconciliation with God. Be multiplied to you. Have an overabundance of grace and peace by the power of God and it is granted to us. He gives it to us. And he gives us two things. He gives us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And he gives to us, he grants to us his precious and magnificent promises. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. He gives us everything. This is not just some sort of self-help baloney of be the best version of yourself that you can be. I really hate that term, uh, that phrase, that saying. Uh, you know, it's true, of course, in one level. We do want to be, you know, as best as we can be. That is for sure. That is part of the Christian life. But it has such this, like, it all comes from you. And, you know, like, there's various different versions of yourself. And it just, it bothers me. So I just don't like it. Be the best version of yourself you can be. Now, there is work involved. We are going to get to that. But God has given us everything we need to have the fullness of life, to live a life that is pleasing to God, and even to become, as it says, the partakers of the divine nature. Now, we might have misconceptions of what a godly life looks like. On the one hand, we might think of a religious monk with a shaved head who sits cross-legged on a mountaintop with no creature comforts. Right? On the other hand, we might think that God exists like a genie to give us what we want. And this is really a selfish and materialistic name it and claim it type of religion where God grants you everything your sinful heart desires. And again, this is the theme of 2 Peter. We will know false teachers because they shamelessly go after money and sinful pleasures, all while claiming the name of Jesus. They have not escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust, but by God's power and grace, we can. True godliness is neither asceticism nor sinful hedonism. This word godliness means true worship, reverence, properly honoring God, even so far as to say loyalty and duty. Because of who God is, a truly godly life is filled with contentment, fullness, abundance of life, and joy. It comes from us wanting what God wants. He empowers us to want it, and we work on ourselves to want it. We preach to our own hearts. The target we are aiming for is to be more like Jesus. God is in the process of making us more like Jesus. It's kind of weird to think that. When Jesus says repent, he means turning away from your sin and becoming more holy, like himself. Romans 8.29 says that God has predestined us to become conformed to the image of his son. That's what it means to be a partaker of the divine nature, to become more like Jesus. In addition to granting us everything we need for life and godliness, God has also granted to us precious and magnificent promises. These promises are both individual and worldwide. For the individual, there is the promise of everlasting life, 
right? Sparing hell, giving us eternal life. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For all of humanity, okay, the universal, the promises are really unpacked by Peter in chapter 3. In particular, uh, 3.13, which says, But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter's logic in 2 Peter is this. God is powerful. God has made promises that he is going to fulfill. God has granted everything that we need. And in response, what are we to do? Verses 5 through 7 tell us. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. love. This literary, literary device is called a cerites, where one step builds on another to reach a climax or a conclusion. These three verses, in fact, have been called the ladder of faith. And there is a general flow from the inner being to the outward action. Okay? Faith, moral excellence, knowledge are sort of interior things to us. And then there is a bridge, which is self-control. And then perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love are sort of the outward workings of these things. Okay? And I will also say that faith is the basis of all these qualities. And love really is the pinnacle, the supreme quality that we want to have. The first thing he calls us to do is to apply all diligence. This is going to take hard work. That's what diligence is, hard work. Okay? The gifts have been granted to us. Now it is up to us to make use of them. Let me stress again, God does not save us because we work hard and earn it. Instead, God saves us by his grace, and then we work hard. The difference is 100% difference, 180 degrees, black and white, heaven and hell. Every other religion, every other man-made religion is work hard first, and then you get salvation, nirvana, reincarnation, 70 virgins in heaven, or you become a god yourself, and you get a whole planet to rule. Right? The way of Jesus is the opposite. It's get saved, and then the proof that you are saved is that you work hard to follow Jesus. I like how one commentator has put it. He calls it the call for response, living the life that has been given in which we express in action the nature God has created in us. Express in action the nature that God has created in us. Okay, so let's go through these qualities briefly uh, in order. All right, first of all, diligence, like I said, is hard work. It's earnest effort. We are called to apply ourselves. Okay? I saw a meme earlier this week where um, some people, uh, it said that, you know, the Christian life is not standing there, leaning against a shovel, and expecting a hole to appear. Right? That's not it. You've received the gifts. What you do with them is up to you. And what we ought to do with them is to work hard. 
Okay, faith. Faith is trust or belief. Okay, we've talked about this at length already. It's heart belief, not just head knowledge. Okay, faith. Uh, moral excellence. Moral excellence is virtue or goodness. Being morally good in your inner being. The Bible says that God has written his moral law on our hearts. We have a conscience. We have an inequality of knowing what is right. Sadly, our sinful nature tells us not to do those things. We rebel against God. Next, knowledge. Knowledge is learning things. Learning things. Doctrine. Defending the faith. Engaging the culture. Best practices in ministry. Just because I emphasize the heart knowledge when it comes to salvation doesn't mean we don't also need head knowledge. Learn the head knowledge also. And in fact, orthodoxy, we say, should lead to orthopraxy. Right belief ought to lead to right living. So then this bridge, the self-control. Faith, moral excellence, knowledge are internal qualities. Self-control bridges the inner and the outward. Self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, it says in Galatians 5, 23 It is a great quality to have. Our society does not promote a great deal of self-control. Technology, credit cards, easy debt, other people who are willing to sin with us, all of these things mean that we can pretty much get what we want when we want it. I read recently that getting a smartphone is the single greatest increase in power that any of us will ever experience. Right? If you touch this in the right way, a pizza will show up at your door in 30 minutes. That's crazy. We will save ourselves a lot of pizza, uh, a lot of trouble and pizza. My doctor says I swallow a lot of aggression, along with a lot of pizza. Uh, we will save ourselves a lot of trouble if we can develop our sense of self-control. All right, next, perseverance. Perseverance is steadfastness. Steadfastness with an end goal in mind. Not just sticking with something for the sake of sticking with it, but understanding that there is something greater ahead. Okay, suppose you go for a 25-mile run. That would be quite an accomplishment. Take a lot of perseverance. But if you ran 26.2 miles, then you could say, I ran a marathon. So, right? That feeling of accomplishment is what you persevere for. Likewise, we run a race that is set before us, throwing off the sin that so easily entangles us, Hebrews 12.1, because of God's precious and magnificent promises that are worth more than any trial or affliction or tribulation that he might, uh, that he might allow us to go through. And then godliness. Godliness is reverence. Reverence. Properly worshiping and honoring God. It's duty. It's loyalty. We spoke about this before in verse 3. God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And then brotherly kindness. Brotherly kindness. The, weak, the Greek word for this is Philadelphia, which is familiar to us as a word because it's, of course, a major city on the East Coast, right? The city of brotherly love. 
Incidentally, that's where the Declaration of Independence was signed 245 years ago. It's the love and sacrifice. Philadelphia is the love and sacrifice that we make for each other as Christians. Okay? John 13, 34, 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. Okay? Philadelphia. And then love. The love is, love is a, a commitment of the will to the true good of another. This is what God does for us. He committed his will to our true good, and he continually does so. And so in turn, we receive that grace and vertically and bend it out horizontally to others. Okay? It extends Philadelphia from inside the church to those outside the church. As Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Not romantic love or affection, which is more about how you feel, but rather committing your will to their true good, even if it costs you a great deal. And if you have a problem with that, just ask Jesus what it cost him to act for our true good. So these internal qualities, faith, moral excellence, knowledge of the bridge, self-control, and then the external qualities, perseverance, godliness, Philadelphia, and love. Point three on your outline, give me liberty or give me death. This, of course, is the quote from Patrick Henry. He declared that he needed to have one or the other. He would rather live in, uh, he would rather die than to live under the oppression of the tyranny of the homeland, Great Britain, in the colonies. Give me liberty or give me death. Okay? Uh, likewise, we have two possibilities, verse 8 and verse 9. Okay, verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. On the other hand, verse 9, For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Okay? You either have these qualities, which is an indication that you are saved and you have been given liberty from slavery to sin, or... You lack these qualities, which means that you are still in your sins, and you will perish instead of everlasting life. Liberty or death, indeed. And when Peter writes, if these qualities are yours, it's more a sense that you own these qualities. Ownership, okay? Ownership of these qualities. It's not just that you are these things, it's that you own these qualities. And then, he writes that if these qualities are increasing, which uh, has the sense of uh, having more than enough, even uh, too much, okay? This picks up on the theme in verse 2 of grace and peace be multiplied to you, okay? And in verse 3 that God has granted to us everything, right? It also picks up the idea in the section we just finished about supply. Supply comes from people who would generously provide for the Greek choruses, you know, in Greek uh, comedies or tragedies, you know, I think of uh, big budget movies, right, uh, with a huge cast and a huge crew, and the producers have to provide the food, right, the catering for all these stars and all these crew. And it's not chintzy, it's a really nice spread. It's that kind of supply, 
that kind of abundance, that kind of increasing, okay? This is what God grants to us. And the result of having these qualities in abundance is that you won't be useless or unfruitful. Useless in the sense of lazy or idle. Not working, which makes you worthless. In the New Testament, this itself is a bad quality and usually leads to other sins like gossip or gluttony. Unfruitful means that you are not producing any good uh, results. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 7, 17. Every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. Do you know what Jesus was talking about? False prophets. One of the major themes of 2 Peter. In fact, all of chapter 2. And also, bearing no fruit, bearing no fruit is not morally neutral. Being unfruitful or barren is also a metaphor that can be used to describe apostates. That is, people who have left the faith, who no longer believe in Jesus. And being unfruitful is also used to describe uh, Christians who are temporarily unproductive. Titus 3 says this. 1 Corinthians 14 says this. Brothers and sisters, let's not be bad trees that produce bad fruit or that produce no fruit are unfruitful. Instead, because God makes us good trees from the inside out, let's be diligent to produce good fruit. Again, note the true knowledge there. In the, in, the, in the verse. That is the same as the true knowledge in verses 2 and 3. Okay? And the two titles of Jesus, Lord and Christ. If we are with Jesus, who called himself the true vine in John 15, then we will be branches that are fruitful. On the other hand, right, give me liberty or give me death, the one who lacks these good qualities is in deep trouble. So when I say, give me liberty or give me death, I am saying that we have two choices. Either freedom in Christ from slavery to sin or everlasting spiritual death under the wrath of God. And now, not only are these useless and unfruitful, but they are also blind, short-sighted, got amnesia. Blind, they cannot... Behold the glory and goodness of God. This is why we need God to open our spiritual eyes. A little bit like I need these glasses sometimes to to read the page in front of me. Just as he causes us to be born again from a spiritually dead state. Short-sighted, they do not see the promises of God being fulfilled in the age to come. The destruction of the sinful world that Peter talks about in chapter 3, as well as its renewal into a purified new world. They just scoff at the idea that there will be a future judgment and punishment. Forgetful. They have that head knowledge of what Jesus means, um, has done for sinners, but it just doesn't resonate with them. Okay? This phrase typically means a lapse of memory, but in this context, it also could mean willfully ignoring a truth, forgetting, willfully ignoring. Okay? 
Now, in the letter of 1 Corinthians, in uh, chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul gets at this, may be forgetful, may be willingly ignorant, when he has to remind the church, okay? Or do you not know that the, righteous, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, some of us. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. You were washed. That's the purification from former sins. You were sanctified. We have been going through this. Okay? Paul's reminder is a reminder that we also need reminding. And that when we remind others, we should be loving and gracious. Peter also has a reminder in verse 12. Looking back on verses uh, 1 through 11, he writes, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. This is why I'm re-preaching this uh, section of Scripture as a, as a reminder. And we say a lot of the same things every Sunday from the pulpit as a reminder. But not in a boring way, we hope, but rather, you know, uh, putting it through a different lens, like a different, like, like looking at the, the jewel of Scripture through a different facet, right? So today is Independence Day. I, I, I wanted to do something cute with the Declaration of Independence. You know, so that it, it's fresh for us, right? A reminder, constant reminders all the time. That's what our job is as preachers. Okay. Speaking of reminders, let's now move to the last two verses of today's sermon, verses 10 and 11. Point four on your outline is elections and border crossings. All right, I'm not getting political here in terms of current events. We all know that these things can be controversial, but I am trying to pique your interest, keep things fresh, like I just said, by using a uh, the names of a couple of controversial topics to refer to important Christian beliefs. Okay? Verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Okay, first he calls them brethren, or brothers. Right? When Peter writes to those who have received this, a faith of the same kind as ours, he is writing to family. Jesus is the Son of God. In Christ, God the Father adopts us as his children. And so we all become family. Okay? Brethren. And then calling and choosing. This is what I mean by election. Calling and choosing. Now, we're used to, of course... Uh, thinking of election as a political process by which we choose our representatives. But this election, this type of election, in the theological sense, is the doctrine that says that God chooses us. This is the second time that we have read the word call. The first was in verse 3. Him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Now, when someone becomes a Christian, what exactly happens? What does God do and what do I do? Well, the answer is this. In salvation, God alone acts. God alone acts. He calls. He chooses. 
Now, this is the clear teaching of Scripture. He calls and he saves. Out of his mere mercy, he is not obligated to save or show mercy, but he does. We cannot earn our salvation, as we discussed earlier. It's granted to us as a free gift. And not everyone is elected. Not everyone is saved. We preach the gospel so that in the preaching of the gospel, people who are not yet saved, but who are among the elect, come to God. And we pray that it happens while we're, while we're here among them. But not everyone is going to answer that preaching. Okay? But everyone will answer the call when God calls them. Our weekly catechism question gets at this truth. Question 27. Are all people just as they were lost through Adam, saved through Christ? No, only those who are elected by God and united to Christ by faith. Only those who are elected by God. Okay? Nevertheless, God in his mercy demonstrates common grace even to those who are not elect by restraining the effects of sin and enabling works of culture for human well-being. This reminds me of uh, not the Declaration of Independence, but actually of the U.S. Constitution, right? We the people, in order to, what, do all these different things, establish this Constitution for the United States of America, you know, to promote the common good, right? That's common grace from God. Government is a common grace of God, okay? And it's, uh, it's under his ordination that governments are established anyway, okay? Wait a minute, you say. It sure felt like I chose God, right? I heard the gospel, and I believed. Yes, that's right. Man's responsibility is to respond in faith. But that faith, like I said earlier, is a gift from God. So God takes the person who is spiritually dead, regenerates that spiritually dead heart, makes them born again, gives them faith, and then with that faith, they then believe. It's like on Father's Day, if you give your kids money and say, you can buy me a gift with it. You know? It's like the gift that comes back to you. None of that happens without God calling and choosing us. It's election. It's election. And then he writes, be all the more diligent. Okay, there is the reminder to work hard again. Hey, this is the second time Peter has used the word diligent. The first was in verse 5, as we discussed. And Peter, again, uses the word a third time in chapter 3, verse thir- uh, 14. He says, be diligent to uh, be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Now, while it is God's responsibility alone to call, to choose, to elect, to save, Man's responsibility is to receive faith and to obey and to work hard in love and in perseverance and self-control and all of those other qualities. Because by working uh, hard at obeying, we confirm that, in fact, God has saved us through Christ. We make certain of his calling and choosing it. Don't get it twisted. We are not called and chosen and saved because we obey God. We obey God because we are called and chosen and saved. And there are several places in the Bible that speak of us confirming the work that God has saved us. Uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians 13.5, test yourselves, 
to see whether you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you? He abides in you, unless, indeed, you fail the test. Okay? And also, James 1.22, But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. That's that head knowledge versus heart faith. And in Philippians 2.12-13, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So in election, God alone saves, but in sanctification, in our working it out, God and the believer work together. Okay? It's not just our own hard work. God is also working. So when we practice these things, the promise is that we will never stumble. The meaning of stumble here is that we won't permanently be lost or condemned. Uh, we all stumble. We continue to sin. Like while we are in these bodies, in this fallen human nature, even after salvation, we will continue to sin. We will continue to stumble. But this is not that. We will, uh, this is talking about a, a permanent condemnation. Okay? We have certainty about our salvation, and that gives us confidence. He has saved us from all of our sins, past, present, and future. Uh, let me also say this, brothers and sisters. We have been exhorted to be diligent in love. And one of the best ways that we can love our neighbor is to preach the gospel to them. This is how God has determined to work to save people. Through the preaching and the sharing of the gospel that Christ died for sinners. He didn't have to choose this way, right? He could have tapped us with lightning or sent angels to tell the good news. Or, you know, any number of way, uh, other ways, like, you know, scratch off the, the winning lottery ticket. I don't know, right? But he didn't, he didn't choose that way to save sinners. He chose us and gave us the role of sharing the good news with people, okay? So we don't just sit there leaning on our shovel hoping for a hole to appear. We preach the gospel, then God mysteriously works through that in order to save sinners, okay? which is also the same reason why we pray. He already knows what we want, but we pray anyway, because not because he needs to know what we want or what we need, but because he likes to hear from us. And it's good for us. It's good for us to pray. And it's good for us, and it's beneficial to us to preach the gospel in love to our unsaved neighbors, family, and friends. So, so keep sharing the gospel as much as you can and pray for those who you share with. Okay. Today's last, and pre, uh, last precious and magnificent promise is in verse 11. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Entrance into the eternal kingdom, a border crossing, right? We are America. Everyone else in the world wants to get into our country. It's the best place on earth to be. But America has nothing on the eternal kingdom of Jesus. This eternal kingdom already exists now, but it isn't fully realized to us yet. When it is, it will be glorious. Words cannot express all the wonder and glory of that place, and it will be wondrous and glorious because Jesus is there. 
Psalm 1611 says, In your presence is fullness and joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus is the eternal king. He is sovereign over all. He certainly does not, uh, here's the Declaration of Independence, he certainly does not derive his power from the consent of the governed. Right? Isn't it funny? As an American, I love being free. And I love our representative democracy. But as a Christian, what I really love is being a bondservant, a slave, to a king, to a monarch. As long as that king is Lord Jesus. He's sinless. The precious and magnificent promise is that the entrance to the kingdom will be abundantly supplied to us. Now, this is the fourth time just in this passage that Peter conveys this sense of abundance. God is good and generous and gracious. How does one get in to the eternal kingdom? How does one make that border crossing? Well, in the, way, in the words of Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. Jesus isn't only the king, he is also the passport to our entrance to the kingdom. So we are at the close of the worship service, which is when we take communion to celebrate Jesus' sacrifice for us. The cracker represents Jesus' body, which he gave up for us on the cross, and the juice represents his blood, which seals the covenant that God has promised us. Now, unlike previous weeks when we've been sitting outside or last week, uh, I want to invite those of you who uh, haven't uh, gotten the communion cup and the cracker yet to come up and get it. The, the music team is going to come up and lead us in, in musical worship. So I invite them up to, to come. Uh, it really is about, all about Jesus, um, brothers and sisters. Look, I spent a lot of time in the first half. You can wait until the, the music starts. I'm sorry. Uh, you can... Uh, I spent a lot of time in the first half of the sermon lifting up Jesus, right? And that's because if you, if you take the commands of the Bible out of context, you lose the entire meaning, okay? If you skip verses 1 through 4 and go straight to verse 5, you miss the entire point. Lots of people try to improve themselves. That's a good thing. But trying to, for self-improvement outside the power and promises and provision of God can only take you so far. So come to God the Father through Christ the Son by the power of God the Holy Spirit and you will be richly supplied and abundantly provided for and empowered to accomplish all that is in his will. So let's take the communion. Let's declare the Lord's death until he comes, and while we are waiting for his second coming, let's also declare our dependence on him, our God, our Savior, our Christ, and our Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for these magnificent promises, this wonderful provision, the abundance that we have in you, and most of all, God, we pray and thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for us. May everyone here believe with their whole hearts and out of the overflow of their hearts, the, their mouths, our mouths would speak to our unsaved family and friends and neighbors and loved ones. We thank you, God. Receive these uh, songs of worship that we are about to sing. Receive our prayers. Receive this declaration that we have by taking the bread and taking the juice. In the name of Jesus, amen.